Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Broho Ho Bro Camp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. That didn't work out at all, did it? Season's greetings to you all. In this week's episode, it's part three of our year-end investing series with the help of industry focuses Nick Seipel. We're going to dig into the energy sector. Get it? Puns. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, by the laws of personal finance multimedia, I am obliged at this time of year to offer a few year-end financial planning tips. Some of the types I'm going to say you've heard every year, uh, but there are a few that are unique to 2020, and boy, it's been a unique year. So here are some ways to make the most of this interesting year. In fact, I have five. Number one, max out employer-sponsored accounts. So you actually have until April 15th of next year to make a 2020 contribution to an IRA. But the deadline for make for most employer sponsored accounts like 401ks and 403bs is December 31st. Um, so if you haven't yet maxed out the account, if you have a little money lying around, you still have a little bit of time. But you generally can't wait until the last day of the month. For most employers, you have to change your rate of contribution a few days before the final payroll of the year. Um, just an example here at the Motley Fool, if you want to max out your account this year, you have until December 10th before 4 p.m. to do it. Um, but of course, your job will be different. So talk to your HR department. The bottom line here is that most 401k plans, or at least many, don't actually allow you to just send a check. You have to do it through the payroll. Um, just as a reminder, the contribution limits in 2020 for most employer-sponsored retirement accounts, it's 19500 with an additional 6500 if you'll be 50 or older by December 31st. For IRAs, $6,000 with an additional $1,000 for the 50 and better crowd. Uh, and those limits are not changing in 2021. They're staying the same. That said, the income thresholds on being able to contribute to a Roth or whether your contributions to a traditional IRA are deductible, um, those will change. So check those out if you're going to contribute to an IRA in 2021. Number two, make a coronavirus-related distribution from your employer account if possible. So thanks to the CARES Act that was passed in March, employers who have experienced certain health or financial-related hardships due to the coronavirus can withdraw up to $100,000 combined from their retirement accounts and avoid the 10% early distribution penalty if they're not yet 59 and a half, though you still will owe taxes. The good news is you have up to three years to return the money, and it doesn't have to go back into the account from which it came. And we've mentioned this a few times this year. This actually provides an opportunity for people who are in mediocre or worse employer plans to move the money to an IRA. However, this option is only possible this year, and the deadline is actually December 30th, not 31st. So if you're intrigued, make sure you're to visit the IRS website to make sure that you fit the criteria for making one of these coronavirus-related distributions. Number three, convert traditional to Roth assets. So you have till December 31st to do a conversion for this year. And this year is a particularly good one to consider a Roth. Tax rates are historically lo low and income has dropped for many Americans. Of course, you pay taxes on the converted amounts, but then the money grows tax-free as long as you follow the rules. Um, this is also a good year for Americans over the age of 70 who want to do conversions. Normally, you have to take your required minimum distribution from a traditional account first and then do the conversion, and no conversions do not count towards the required minimum distribution. But all RMDs have been suspended for this year, so you can convert at will. 
Um, just remember that ever since the tax overhaul that passed in 2017, conversions can, can no longer be undone by something known as a recharacterization. So only do a conversion if you're sure that it makes sense. Number four, spend money remaining in flexible spending accounts. So depending on your employer's plan, um, you have until December 31st to spend the money in a dependent care or medical flexible spending plan. Um, some plans do have different deadlines. Some allow for extended grace periods up to maybe March 15th. Uh, and for the medical account, some plans allow you to roll up to $550 to 2021. And that's up from last year's $500 carryover amount. Also, thanks to the CARES Act, the items that qualify for your medical flexible spending account have been greatly expanded. So visit fsastore.com to see what's eligible. And again, reach out to your HR department to find out the deadlines for your plan. And finally, number five, deduct charitable cash contributions. Once again, thanks to the CARES Act, taxpayers can deduct up to $300 in cash contributions to qualifying charities without having to itemize their tax returns. Uh, make sure you visit the IRS website for more info. And it also has a searchable database um, to find which, which organizations qualify. Um, of course, you can always donate more. And I hope you do because, man, there are a lot of people and businesses struggling out there. Um, I personally need to step up my own charity. My wife and I are actually going to talk about that later today. And I've been trying to focus my holiday spending on local businesses, you know, independent bookshops, mom and pop shops, which, by the way, if you visit their website, a lot of local businesses actually offer online ordering, remote pickup, even shipping. Um, and a lot of independent businesses are struggling. I'm trying to support them. And I hope you'll consider doing the same. And that, Allison, is what's up. Now listen, people, let me tell you some news. I sing a song called the Crude All Blues. We're low on heat and on, we're low on gas. And I'm so cold, I'm about to freeze myself. We got the Crude All Blues. Well, hey, it's Nick Seipel. He's on our Full.com team, and he hosts the Energy Sector Day on Industry Focus, a sister podcast of Motley Fool Answers. Uh, what day is Energy Day, Nick? Thursday. Yeah, Thursday, Energy and Industrial. So, so excited to be on here on Answers. This is my first time on here. I'm in the guest chair, which is kind of a little bit different, You know, answering the questions instead of uh, asking the questions. But yeah, every Thursday, we talk about what's going on in Energy and Industrials. I've had a lot of great guests on this year. Uh, Bethany McLean is just one, one example. Uh, so check it out if you're interested in the sector. Yeah, so you are the third uh, member to join us. So we've talked to Dylan about tech, and we talked to Emily Flippin about consumer goods. And so today is energy. And this is um, one of those sectors that I feel like I understand a bit, but probably not really much at all. So I'm going to need you to talk to me like I don't understand anything more than energy make life go. So um, I know that energy can be pretty broad, right? I mean, we power our cars, our homes. So we're talking gasoline, natural gas, coal, wind, solar. I don't know. Where should we start when talking about energy? Yeah. So when we're talking about energy, I think the way you know most of us think about it is just things that deliver electrons to your home that turn the lights on. So right, you put the, the gas in your car. That might be a company like Exxon. However, uh, one important thing to think about when you're an investor is the way the S&P thinks about energy may not match exactly the way you think about energy. So if you look at the S&P 500 energy sector that comprises companies engaged in the exploration and production, refining and marketing, and storage and transportation of oil and gas, 
coal and consumable fuels and also includes companies that offer oil and gas and equipment services. So what that means is if you are invested in you know, the XLE ETF, the energy uh, sector, the S&P 500, you're essentially investing in oil and gas companies. So that's these big integrated companies like Exxon that produce oil, distribute oil, and refine oil. Then you've got big production companies like ConocoPhillips, EOG Resources, Occidental Petroleum, pipeline businesses. Those are these midstream companies. Kinder Morgan would be a company uh, folks are familiar with. Refiners like Philip 66, and then service servicing companies like Schlumberger or, or Halliburton. So those, those are the big uh, uh, subsectors when it comes to energy in the S&P 500. Yeah, I think it's one one thing that I didn't really think about until I um, actually a long time ago used to kind of host uh, industry focus when it was on uh, video form, and is the idea that um, there are all of these tons and tons of companies that are dedicated along the way to getting you your energy. So there are the ones who who explore to try and find oil. There are the ones who dig the holes. There are the ones. So can you talk a little bit about just um, a little bit more about all of the different companies that are involved in bringing energy to you? Sure. Yeah. So when you you hear investors talk about oil and gas, you'll often hear these these the three streams, right? So upstream, midstream, and downstream. Uh, and so that that kind of refers to the supply chain of oil. So if you think about the oil flowing downhill, it starts out upstream and it goes downstream. So the upstream are these um, exploration and production companies, is what they're known as. These are the people that are pulling the oil physically out of the ground. Those are the companies like ConocoPhillips and EOG Resources that I just mentioned. When you talk about midstream, that's just a code word mostly for pipelines. You take the oil out of the ground, you put it in a pipe, and you send it down. To market these pipeline companies, uh, kind of interest, interesting aspect about them is they kind of have a monopoly, right? You own the pipe that's distributing uh, this commodity to market, so they're a little bit less sensitive to oil prices than the producers that are literally selling this oil as it comes out of the ground. And then, lastly, you have the downstream. These are the refiners. These are the folks that take oil and then turn it into gasoline, jet fuel, plastic, what what have you. Um, and so that's how that those work. Um, then you have the integrated companies. Those are like Exxon. They do all three. And then uh, la- the last one would be these servicing companies. Like you said, you mentioned the, the companies that drill the holes in the ground. They are the companies that help those producers kind of do their work. When I think of a typical Motley Fool stock, I think of tech, consumer goods, retail, stuff that we've already talked about um, in our series. I don't necessarily think of energy. Um, why, why is that? Is it because energy is hard to understand because it's so massive? Or I don't know. I don't think foolish stocks when I think energy, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, I think the reason that that it's difficult for us as the Motley Fool to, to pick energy stocks is we tend to be long-term buy-and-hold investors. You find a company with a strong uh, competitive advantage that can continue compounding that over time. Energy, just the, the particularities of that market, tends to not work that way. It's a commodity market, oil produced in one part of the world. You know, there, there's puts and takes when it comes to different grades of oil, but for the most part, um, these are substitutes. And just given the vicissitudes of human nature, the market is very cyclical. So when things are going really good, everybody wants to rush into the oil market and produce more oil, which pushes prices down, which leads to people losing money, which pushes people out of the market through bankruptcies, and on and on and on in this in this endless cycle. And so it's very difficult when it comes to investing in in oil and gas stocks. These historical historical uh, drivers of the energy market uh, to just buy a company and then hold it over the long term. You have to ride these cycles. And it's just, it doesn't fit the foolish kind of uh, mindset in general. Although you can make money doing that. And we have, we have recommended energy, energy stocks in the past. It just, in that, in that uh, oil and gas sector, the last thing that I would mention is oil and gas is arguably in secular decline, right? If you talk about a, 
historically you have this cyclical uh, nature of the market where it's difficult to hold over the long term. And then we've got this rise of renewable, where I, I think most folks are, would argue about the pace at which uh, oil demand might decrease. But I think it, most folks would agree that 50 years from now, there will be less oil demand than there is today. And so for those reasons, it's just hard to buy and hold for the long term in the oil and gas sector. Uh, I was reading the Wall Street Journal the other day about the fall of Exxon. I believe it was as recently as 2012, maybe, that it was the biggest company in the S&P 500. And now it's been kicked out of the uh, Dow. Um, energy stocks in general are the, the sector that is the worst performing so far this year. Um, it is a fascinating story when you look at, at an industry that dominated the economy for so long and you just wonder... Is this cyclical or is this the end of oil dominance and, and people really should be looking beyond oil for a longer term investment? Yeah, I, I don't know. We'll see. I, I think, you know, all these things take time. I think the stat on the average car on the road is like 11 years old. So even if you want to say EVs are going to be 100% of the new cars sold next year, it's going to take a little bit of time um, for that changeover to take place. But but to your point, when you talk about the energy sector, like I said off the top, uh, it's all oil and gas. And I think today, when a lot of people think about the future of energy, uh, what, what energy is, uh, a lot of folks would say, we probably need to rebalance this sector. When people think about, you know, I want to go invest in renewable energy, they're thinking about companies like NextEra Energy, which is a utility, or Brookfield Renewable uh, uh, Corporation, which is also a utility. You've got Plug Power, uh, has been has been kind of a hot renewable stock this year, also not uh, in that subsector. So I think I think it's a fair argument to say that we're probably due for rebalancing in the energy sector as oil becomes less prominent. I'm not predicting that oil is going to go away anytime soon, but uh, I think there's a strong argument to say we should probably rethink what the energy sector is going forward. Wait a second. Energy has been in decline since 2012 because I get it. We'll get we'll get into the year of 2020 with energy. But what's been going on since 2012 that the whole sector is um, oil anyway is is in decline. Yeah. So so when it comes to to 2012, um, at the decline of the energy sector, it, it's really been this idea of shale. Shale's worked too well. So since the early 2000s, uh, shale oil and gas has, has really been under development and it really surged. Following uh, 2008, 2009, when oil prices surged to all-time highs, as I mentioned earlier, the cyclical nature of the energy markets, when oil prices get high, that draws in new supply, encourages folks to look where oil and gas, maybe they, they could access it, but it maybe didn't make economic sense in the past. Well, uh, you know, we had tons of capital flow into shale, oil, and gas, which worked really incredibly well. When you when you discover uh, uh, supplies of oil and gas that, that drive production up, I want to say uh, over 10 million barrels a day uh, uh, for the U.S. The U.S. is producing 13 million barrels a, a day of oil, uh, making it the biggest producer in the world from you know a couple years ago. Uh, U.S. Was, was nowhere uh, near the, the, the biggest producer in the world. And so in a, in a market uh, such as energy, like I said earlier, that's a commodified market, when you see this massive amount of supply uh, come on at a, at a faster pace than demand that, dr that drives down uh, energy prices. And then if you look at uh, the shale oil and gas, the, the kicker is none of this uh, production is really profitable. We, we've been seeing past uh, for, for years and years, uh, each incremental barrel of oil getting pulled out of the ground is cash flow negative for these businesses. You can talk about why uh, production continues. That there's more uh, debt capital flowing uh, flowing to these companies. There's incentive structures when it comes to some managements that incentivize producing more volume uh, rather than maybe uh, earnings per share 
things like that. Uh, and so really, the, the big takeaway is shale has worked so well uh, that it's driven oil and gas to, to levels where it's just difficult to make a profit. And so, uh, you know, it's if you can't make money, that's uh, a tough situation for these companies to be in. You mentioned Exxon. Exxon has been paying has been paying over 100% uh, dividend payout ratio for over five years. Uh, so just really a tough spot to be in for these companies. Okay, so tough spot, and then 2020 hits, and suddenly I think no one's driving around as much. No one's, I don't know, maybe there's other transportation energy things gobbling up energy, but it feels like 2020 was probably an awful thing to hit the energy industry at an already awful time. Yeah, so so like the way, when I think about what happened to energy this year, is have you ever seen that GIF and it's Ron Paul and he's like got his hands in the air and it says it's happening or whatever? That that's kind of how I would describe the energy market for this year. So back at the beginning of February, I had Tracy Shukart on the podcast. Folks might know her as at Shy Girl on Twitter. Really great follow when it comes to energy markets. This is before you know the big the big COVID um, pandemic really really took hold. And uh, we talked about this wall of debt that was coming uh, uh, for the shale patch in, in 2020 that we'd seen, seen building going back uh, to when uh, the, the market really uh, kind of crashed back in, in 2016. We expected to see a bunch of bankruptcies come down this year. And then, of course, you had uh, the pandemic take place where that really whacked uh, a lot of demand uh, for oil on that same podcast. Uh, Tracy cited the stat for each uh 10-hour flight, uh, that's 700 barrels of oil per flight. And so you have international travel really shut down. That crushes demand. And then at the same time, you had this temporary kerfuffle between Saudi Arabia and Russia, where they both increased production into this decline in demand, which everybody saw that the news back in the spring that drove oil briefly below $0. And so I think kind of the takeaway is you've seen a lot this year this idea of trends being pulled forward that were already taking place. So, you know, telehealth, remote work, all these sorts of things. One trend was a lot of these shale companies had been in this this period where uh, they were losing money perpetually at building up this wall of debt that was coming due, and it was all going to come uh, come due sooner or later, and it happened. And we've seen a bunch of bankruptcies this year. Chesapeake, probably the most prominent among them, at one point was the largest producer of natural gas uh, in the U.S., uh, I believe, and, and you know, now... Uh, it's just gone bankrupt. Uh, it's just one of those things where uh, they were already in a tough spot, and then you had this historical crisis that really uh, made it that much more pressing. We haven't really talked much about renewable energy, so we probably should talk about renewable energy. So if if big energy, oil, gas is not doing so well, how's renewable energy doing? So renewables done incredibly well this year. If you look across top performers in the market, uh, you know companies like Brookfield Renewable, I think is, is on a double this year. NextEra Energy is up uh, over twenty percent. You look that against uh, the energy ETF down twenty eight percent, doing quite well. Obviously, the EV sector has been really hot this year with a lot of those those names uh, performing well. I, one thing I would say though about Renewables is some of the valuations on these are, are, are really, really optimistic. I think you know, as pessimistic as you know the story is for oil, I, I would say the optimism on on renewable is probably as strong on the other side. And by EV, where you, just to be clear, you mean electric vehicles? Electric vehicles, Tesla and uh, and various uh, competitors, of which there are many uh, uh, arriving every day this year. 
Yeah, I guess it is pretty crazy that Exxon fell off the Dow, but then Tesla joined the S&P. Am I getting that right? Yes, absolutely. Oh, so, yeah. so again, yeah, there's this idea of, of you know, is now the time when the transition takes place? I think one of the big headlines from this year is you saw BP back in August basically say, hey, we want to get out of the oil uh, and gas business. They want to cut their aggregate oil and natural gas production by 40%. By 2030, uh, they, they expect their income from oil and gas to go into decline. But beginning in 2025, by 2025, they want to approve 20 gigawatt, gigawatts of renewable energy projects. So, you know, you have this idea of, you know, this, this debt wall kind of came due for shale and we have a lot of, of reckoning here. And then you've got, you know, uh, big oil companies like, like BP are saying we need to pivot to renewables. There, there's a lot of reasons behind that. We've seen a lot of, of European Kind of energy uh, majors do this partially because maybe the regulatory framework is more clear there, and there's a little bit more of a ESG push um, in that market. But I think it was a really big story to see, you know, an oil giant saying basically we intend to move quickly to become a renewable energy player, and this is a field they really don't have a ton of experience in. So I don't want this to this is, this may sound bad, Nick, but I was kind of expecting this conversation about energy to be. Um, not interesting to me, but it's actually been really interesting. So thank you for coming. <laughs> it sounds like this is a this is a fascinating time in the energy sector, um, for better or for worse. And so this is actually um, I'm in, I just wanted to pause and say thanks, Nick. I'm enjoying this conversation. So, well, let's start looking ahead. So, what are some trends that you're watching for 2021? Well, I think the big one is from an energy policy point of view. I talked about earlier how the regulatory framework is maybe a little bit more clear in Europe than it is in the U.S. So we do have a new presidential administration changeover, and there's been been talk about you know Green New Deal and, and expanded environmental policies. What happens with the Paris Climate Accord? Uh, those sorts of things. I, I think that's one one thing to watch. Uh, there's been this talk about you know is fracking going to be banned? I, I don't think that's likely to take place. But you know, as far as effects on oil and gas companies, maybe there will be changes in permitting structure or you know uh, the requirements when it comes to emissions and things like that. So I, I think across the sector, I think there, there's questions about what happens from a regulatory point of view. Number one, and then number two, I just think broadly is is how does the economy recover? Are people going to start flying again? How quickly does travel recover? The vaccine, and I, I think that's true across the market, but in particular in energy, when essentially any part of economic activity, anytime you travel, trade, any of these sorts of things, uh, energy use goes up. Yeah, we saw last month we were talking about the, the struggles of energy, but in November, uh, the energy sector was the best performing sector and oil jumped 27%. But so clearly some investors are are investing at least short term in energy companies to to benefit from the rebound. Yeah, absolutely. And I you know, I think to a certain extent maybe there were, there was a lot of pessimism in some of these companies. I still think it's a hard road ahead. So you know, you look at Exxon, folks might say, "Hey, you know, it's a 9% dividend yield, but uh I I don't I don't know. It, it's tough." But that said, We've seen this year lots of companies reduce investment, you know, in exploration and production. I talked about um, talked about BP. Exxon's also announced they're gonna they're gonna spend less. So over time, what does that mean for for oil and gas companies when there's less investment? Sooner or later, that that shows up in production and, and maybe prices go up. I, I don't know. I, the big challenge is too we're in this oversupply scenario, and, and most production globally is controlled by you know nation states uh, that aren't as uh, necessarily profit motivated in the same way that, that public companies are. So uh, it's just it's a tough spot for these companies to be in. I, I don't know if I'd predict a recovery, but I don't know if I'd predict their demise either. 
So then what's an investor to do? What are what are you, what are you doing as an investor? Do you invest much in this sector or are you just like follow it for the show? <laughs> yeah, I would say for me, um, if you're kind of a beginning investor and you want energy exposure, I think it's a very, very difficult place uh, to kind of kind of play in, especially the exploration and production companies. You've got this super high sensitivity uh, to oil prices, and then you've got managements that are, are just kind of in a tough spot. I, I think for me, if if I just want broad energy exposure, I don't hate Berkshire Hathaway. They have a huge renewable portfolio. They touch essentially every part of the market. Uh, this year, they bought Dominion Energy's um, pipeline assets. I think those pipeline assets are really strong um, strong assets. So, so that's that's where I'm invested when, when it comes to energy. I think it's a, it's a difficult space to be involved in. I, I think if you're a... Um, if you're a an income investor, I think pipeline companies make sense. Again, uh, these are companies that kind of have a monopoly on that pipeline route. So once once you have that in place, um, you're in a strong position. But I would say, uh, you know, energy is a place that you should you should tread carefully, particularly on the energy and production side. So that's generally what I try to do. All right, Nick. Before we go, how about you share a stock to watch? Awesome. Yeah. So as a stock to watch, I'm going to give credit to Jason Hall. He appears with me regularly on the Industry Focus Energy Podcast. Also hosts uh, the wrap on Fool Live for our Motley Fool subscribers. This company is TPI Composites. They're the largest independent contract manufacturer for wind turbine blades. Blades are the most prominent part of a wind turbine, but they're only 22% of the installed turbine costs. What's interesting about, about this market is, so we talked earlier about commodification and energy. You see it in oil and gas. You see it in natural gas. In renewables, you see it as well uh, when it comes to solar panels, because you, historically, there's been massive volumes produced in China, which is, has just uh, made it difficult to make money in that market. Wind is a little bit different, which is why TPI composites is different. So the size of these turbine blades can be just absolutely massive. Part of that is for efficiency reasons. The analogy I'll give is if you ever see those old um, bicycles with the giant wheel on the front, those are racing bicycles because you could go faster. The bigger uh, the bigger size of the wheel is more efficient. And it's a similar uh, uh, factor when it comes to wind turbines. And because of the size um, of these blades, logistically, it's difficult to say, make this big old blade in China and then ship it to the US. So it, it combats some of the commodification in the market. Um, their their customers uh, have 52% of the global onshore wind uh, market, 88% of the global market, excluding China, big customers like Vestas Wind Systems and General Electric. One thing to note there is, is there, there is some customer concentration risks. So over 70% um, of, their, of their business comes from General Electric and Vestas. However, we are seeing increasing outsourcing of those, uh, of those businesses. Why is that? One, just because demand is lumpy, uh, you know, only so often do you have these big investment grade projects. So it doesn't necessarily make sense to always have your own dedicated uh, uh, production capacity. And then again, those that size of the turbine blades um, makes it difficult to ship. And so uh, some of these companies don't necessarily want to have production facilities all over the world. And so it makes sense to outsource. And when you look at the business for TPI Composites, They've had uh, pretty strong growth the past several years, growing set revenue at a 26% compound annual growth rate over the last five years. In the most recent quarter, net income flipped to $40 million uh, from losing $4 million the year before. They're expanding their production lines and extending supply agreements. So you see their cash flow a little bit negative, but that's because they're investing for growth. And one other thing that, that I think is interesting when you talk to this continued growth uh, in outsourcing 
and wind turbines. One of their competitors is Hexel. They're a producer of composite materials similar to TPI composites. They're a supplier for Vestas wind systems for the internal uh, uh, wind turbine blades that they produce. And this is a quote from their recent earnings call. Uh, Hexel CEO said, said, quote, major wind energy customers shifted their U.S. blade operation to an outsourced model rather than using Hexel's glass fiber composite material to manufacture their blades in-house for the Americas region. So that likely refers to uh, to TPI composites. So you see this continued strong growth. You see uh, signs customers are continuing to move to outsourcing. Wind energy uh, is has reached a point where it is uh, less expensive uh, than traditional uh, forms of energy, be that coal um, and, and things like that. And so continued growth um, in wind. And so for all those reasons, uh, lots of tailwinds for TPI composites and uh, valuation. They're at, at an all time, near an all-time high valuation right now at 1x sales. Lots of growth for for, uh, for the business going forward. And they're in a, an interesting uh, a niche that I, that I think uh, gives them potential to grow in this kind of new normal as energy transitions toward renewable. Awesome. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all. It was, it was great to be on here. I hope I answered your questions. Yeah, well, I think that was fantastic. Um, I really appreciate you coming on. And like I said, I enjoyed I enjoyed our chat. I, I This was more interesting than I thought it was going to be. Again, no offense, but... <laughs> hey, no, it's not, a, it's not a big deal. Like, um, this is... Uh, you know, uh, the thing about energy is like it kind of is behind everything that's going on. Um, like, so when you like, like from a service level, it's kind of boring. It's like oil, but then when you when you kind of drill into it, there's lots of kind of interesting moving parts um, behind the scenes that uh, you know. I don't know if I would rush to invest in it, but it's important to understand it. I think. Right, drill into it, tailwind, <laughs> all puns hey. intended. I'm sure. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we'd love to have you back again. Um, and oh, I should always remember the disclaimer. As always, The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about on the show. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard here. Well, that's the show. It's edited energetically by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Uh, we will be, yeah, we'll be finishing off this year with a mailbag episode. So bring it so we can answer it. Answers at fool.com. For Robert Procamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.